Well, today is December the 26th, 2010, as you know, and on my calendar I noticed that today is a day that they call Boxing Day. You may have seen that on your calendar, that December 26th, every year, is a day called Boxing Day, and I always wondered what that was, and so I looked it up and discovered that uh, if you're from the UK or Canada or one of the other places that was colonized by the British, that Boxing Day has become known as the day where you actually box up the gifts that you got on Christmas that you didn't want and you take them back to the store and return them for something that you did. That's actually what Boxing Day is. That's what it has become to be known as. So welcome to the commercialism and the day and age in which we live. And so I'm a preacher, and I have to think about those things and how they actually intersect with the Christian life. And I thought about that and about how we so often do that with our Christianity. There's a sense in which we uh, have Jesus, we have the gospel, it's been given to us as a free gift. But after you've kind of been in the church for a while and you've been living the Christian life for a while, it loses its luster. And there are other things that glitter at us and shine at us and that are more attractive to us than Jesus Christ and than his gospel. And so what our tendency can be after a while and after our faith has become cold is to want to kind of box up Jesus and return him for something that we think that we really need and that we really want for ourselves. That's our tendency. Well, that's why we need things like Psalm 98. Because I think that Psalm 98 is designed to reinvigorate us. It's designed to get us out of that tendency to want to push Christ to the periphery, make him just kind of a Sunday morning thing that we do just because we have the sense of duty to come and be here on Sunday morning, and to really enliven our souls, to give us a reason to have joy within our hearts. You know, a lot of the Psalms that we read have kind of a downcast feel to them. They're songs of lament. They're uh, kind of forlorn. And in other respects, the psalms that we read are, are very joyful. They're, they're psalms that expose the heart and, the, and a heart that's really delighting themselves in God. And, and I think that Psalm 98 fits into that latter category. It's a psalm of joy. It's a psalm of worship and gladness. Because the psalmist who's writing this is glad in who God is and what he's done for us. And in fact, you'll notice in your bulletin that the title of this sermon is Joy to the World. That's what I've entitled this sermon. And the reason why I've entitled it Joy to the World is because that Christmas carol that we all know so well, that we sang at the beginning of our worship service, is, as I mentioned, based upon Psalm 98. When Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World, he was using Psalm 98 as his inspiration because it's pointing people to the eternal joy that the king brings to us. And I think that when that moves from just becoming a concept in our life, something that we just assume, and something that we just intellectually affirm, and it moves from that category, and it it moves into the category of really weaving itself out in all of the facets of our life, all of the mundane and practical experiences that we have in our life, that's when Christ becomes actually joyful to us. And we actually are delighted by him and satisfied with him. And Psalm 98 is designed to do that. So as we read this psalm, we're going to read it here in just a moment, but you might even want to keep hymn number 92 open to you, Joy to the World, because we're going to interact with that just a little bit as we look at this psalm this morning. So with all of that in view, let's go ahead and read Psalm number 98 right now. A psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song. 
For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but we know that the word of our God stands forever. That's the great promise we have when we read Scripture. Well, being a minister at Christmas time, for me anyway, is a lot of fun because in our worship services, I get to pick out the music, and, and at Christmas time, I get to pick out a lot of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are, are the types of music that a lot of us have a lot of affinity towards. We, we recognize them, they stir up an affection within our hearts, and we have a real strong acquaintance with them. And everybody knows the song that we sang at the beginning of our service this morning, Joy to the World. You hear it in the shopping mall as you're shopping at Christmas time. People who have never once set foot in church and never will know Joy to the World. They might be able to sing all four stanzas of that. It's just part of our culture. It's a cultural icon. And you know, one of the hallmarks of good music is that the tune carry the words very well. That it actually speaks the message that the words are actually trying to say. So the tune that is put here by George Frederick Handel, the Handel's Messiah guy that you might be familiar with, does a great job of taking that tune and bringing joy to it. It's a joyful set of words set to a joyful tune. And until just a a few years ago, um, I did not know that Joy to the World actually has more stanzas to it than we actually sing. It actually has three more stanzas to it. And those three stanzas that we do not sing, that that we're just unaware of, we don't know the words to, are built upon the first three verses of Psalm 98. Psalm 98 splits off pretty evenly, and you can tell as you look at it in your Bible, into three stanzas. It is a psalm that would have been sung in congregational worship back in the days of the Old Testament. And so the first three stanzas of joy to the world that we don't sing are based off of that first stanza, of Psalm number 98. And I think it's important that we look into what Psalm 98 has to say to us in the first three, three verses before we can understand what joy to the world is all about, what it is that we actually sing. And so what you see in the first three verses of Psalm 98 is a call to worship. It's a summons to worship. It shows us that God takes the initiative in our worship. Every morning here at First Presbyterian Church, we begin our worship services with a call to worship. And we don't do that just because that's some kind of stale tradition that you know, theologians in a smoke-filled room decided would be a good idea to do one day. We do that 
because it shows that God takes the initiative to us in our worship. We cannot worship him unless he steps in and takes that initiative first. And we've actually used Psalm 98 verses 1 through 3 in a call to worship here at First Pres. And what it calls us to do is to sing to the Lord a new song, to lift our hearts and our voices in song to him. And it gets repeated in verse 4 where you see that he calls us to break forth into joyous song and to sing praises. And it reminds me of something. It reminds me that Christianity really is a singing faith. Christianity is a faith that has a song undergirding our lives because there's something about music and singing that stirs up our affections. And it does it in a way that just hearing the word read and preached doesn't completely do. So there's a measure in which lifting our hearts to him in song does that. It's a call to worship, but it's a call to have an affective response to who God is, to what he's done, to what he's accomplished for us. And it tells you that Christianity is not merely just an assent to a bunch of propositions. It's not just about getting your theology right. It's a faith that is about grappling onto our emotional response and using that for the sake of the glory of God so that we would actually enjoy him rather than keeping our faith in this kind of cold, sterile state. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to have a heart aflamed towards him because that's the only way in which we're really going to have joy in this life. We seek it in so many things. We seek joy in so many different things, but they're fleeting, and we know that. They give us joy and they give us happiness temporarily, but then they go away and we have to go chase after something else. But the lasting joy that God gives to us is one that comes as we have an inflamed heart towards God and to what he's done for us. But even as we saw in Sunday school this morning, as we saw in that video that we were watching, we discovered that a lot of us have a view of worship uh, of just loving God with no particular basis for it. We're in love with the idea of loving God, but we don't have a basis for that in many respects. The good thing about Psalm 98 is that it gives us a reason to sing that song. It gives us a reason to have an inflamed heart towards God. And when you look in the first three verses, you actually get six really great solid reasons as to why we can lift our hearts towards God in song and why we can have some kind of affective response to him and to who he is and what he's done for us. So I want to just look at these really quickly, what they are and why we need to remember them. The first thing that we see here is that we can sing to him and our hearts can be inflamed towards him because he has done marvelous things. He's done marvelous things in our life and you see that everywhere in scripture, that he has done marvelous things for his people. The people originally singing this song and hearing this psalm would have understood that the marvelous things that God had done for them included releasing them from the bondage that they had been in for 400 years to the Egyptians. They were in slavery. And friends, I don't think that we have a concept of the misery that that actually was. They were in bondage to people who hated them, who were about making their life as miserable as possible. And God released them from that and led them out of Egypt and into the promised land and devoured their enemies and, and brought them into that place. And we see all throughout Scripture that God is all about defeating his enemies and our enemies. 
And he brings them into the promised land. That's what the Old Testament people singing this psalm would have thought of. And then when we get onto this side of history, we see that all of that deliverance that God had accomplished for his people is exactly what Jesus has accomplished for us on a much grander scale. That's what the gospel does for us. Because what Jesus has done for us in the gospel is that he has released us from a much greater bondage than our forefathers were in when they were in Egypt. He's released us from a hellish eternity. And he's come and he's brought about peace between us and him when there was nothing but hostility. And he's continuing to do that in the lives of many, many people. So you can look back on your own life and see how he has brought you to himself and set you free and how he's doing that now. And you can look forward also at the marvelous things that he'll do when he'll bring us home with him and he'll bring us into his eternal peace. And it's a promise that you have. It's not just a hope or a wish. It's a promise that each one of us who knows Jesus Christ and have rested in him alone actually have and can latch on to. It's easy to take our salvation for granted. It's easy to forget the distance that Christ has come for us to accomplish that for us. And when we do that, when we forget that salvation, when we forget the marvelous things that God has done, that's when our faith becomes sterile and cold and dull and we're attracted to other things other than God in a much greater way. But God wants us to remember this. He wants us to remember the marvelous things that he's done so that we would have joy and delight ourselves in him. Here's the second thing that he's done, the second reason why we can have this song. And it's that his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The people are reminded that their salvation and their hope comes completely from God. And it doesn't come from them. He has done it. His right hand and his holy arm have accomplished that for us. It shows that he's done it. It doesn't come by virtue of anything within us. See, it's not grace anymore if we have to contribute something to our salvation, to something to make us acceptable before God. That's not grace. That's our own efforts. That's earning God's love. But what Psalm 98 shows us and what the whole scope of Scripture shows us is that we cannot do that. His love cannot be earned by us. It's something that he freely gives to us. And it shows us something very important about Christianity, friends. You need to know this. You need to know that Christianity is far, far more about resting than it is about working. Christianity is far more about resting in Jesus Christ and His promises to us in the Word than it is about doing a bunch of stuff in order to keep or earn His love for us. Now, as we rest in Him and as our faith flourishes, it's going to produce something. It's going to produce works. If it doesn't produce any kind of holiness in our life, any measurable holiness, and any clear spiritual fruit, then it's very likely that the faith doesn't exist in the first place. But ultimately speaking, my friends, you need to understand that what Christianity is about is about resting in Him. That's what faith is. Faith is dependent upon someone or something to deliver what it promises to you. And Jesus promises to deliver to every single person who rests in him alone an eternity of perfect peace with him. And a life on this side of eternity knowing that God is constantly fighting 
for us. He's constantly at our side. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And even though the world may be hitting the fan and may be making our life as miserable as it could possibly be, we can still rest in the peace that God has not left us and he will not forsake us. And his steadfast love endures for us forever. And he's even using the most miserable of circumstances for the sake of our good. He takes the initiative to do that. And that's something that you can be reminded of and that I can be reminded of in the times when our faith is tempted to go sterile and tempted to go cold. Here's a third thing that he does for us. And we see this in verse 2. A third reason why we can have this song and have joy within our hearts towards him. It's that he has made known his salvation. It's that he's made it known to us. And that shows us another very important thing about Christianity. It shows us that Christianity is personal. That God is personal to us. It is so easy for us to depersonalize our worship, isn't it? To, to, to relegate Christianity to this list of things rather than dealing with our faith in a way that's personal where, where Christ is actually personally weaving himself out throughout the course of our lives. See, before Jesus was born, he came and he made himself known. He made himself known through the prophets. He made himself known through the works of salvation that he did for them. But then you get a little bit farther. You get to the point where Jesus is born, and he lives and he dies and he rises again and he ascends to the Father, and we discover that he has made himself known through his Son. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that now in these days he has made himself known to us through his Son. And that's where Christmas comes in. That's where the birth of Jesus Christ comes in because the incarnation, Jesus Christ coming as God in the flesh and dwelling amongst us tells us that God has embodied himself amongst us. It means that he's actually been in our shoes. He's walked the path that we've walked. He's been tempted in the ways in which we've been tempted, but he hasn't fallen into it. He's gone through the things that we have gone through. And he's endured all of that for our sake so that he could be personally known by us. Look, only a God who comes to us as a human and is faithful at every single point in his body and soul where we have failed can, can accomplish salvation. Only a God where the punishment that we deserve to be paid by us is not paid by us but paid by him, only that kind of God can accomplish our salvation. If someone is not obeying for you or taking on the justice that you deserve for you, then guess what? You're going to have to obey perfectly or you're going to have to take the justice upon yourself. And because you and I have not obeyed perfectly, all that we deserve is his justice. All that we deserve is his condemnation. We talk a lot about what we deserve in this life, but all that we deserve is that. Psalm 98 points us to something else as well. It points us to the fact that one day a king would come. And a king would come and he would take that in his body for us. That he would actually bear the weight of our sin and the curse that it deserves in order that we might have life with him. In order that we might be set free and have the hope and be able to sing joy to the world and actually have a reason to sing it other than to just give us happy feelings as we go to the mall and go shopping at Christmas time. 
He's given us reason to have joy to the world, and it's because of what he's come to do. Here is a fourth thing that he's done. He's come to reveal his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That means that the gospel is not something that gets to be this hush-hush, kind of privatized thing that only belongs within the walls of this church. That's not what the gospel is about. There's a public dimension to what he has done and what he's currently doing and what he will do for us in the future. It reminds us that the gospel does not belong to any one particular culture, any one particular group of people. It's for anyone, anywhere, who will find themselves resting in Jesus Christ. And with all the talk in our culture these days about diversity, there's a lot of talk about that. It's celebrated in our culture. But Christianity is the only place where we get a reason to celebrate that. It's the only place where we get a reason to have any hope that there will be unity even in the midst of our diversity. And the reason why is because God has created all of that diversity. He's created every tongue and every tribe and every nation for the sake of his glory. And he's redeeming people and bringing people to himself from all of those different walks of life, all of those different tribes and tongues and nations, and he's uniting us under himself, under the gospel, under Christ. And that is why, my friends, the church can speak with a very clear and very prophetic voice to our community as to the beauty of God and to how he takes people who have nothing in common with each other at all other than the gospel and to bring them together and allow them to dwell in unity and fellowship and love and peace with one another. It's something that we can communicate to the world that the, other, that the world's institutions cannot bring. It's, it expresses the beauty of what the gospel is and of what Christianity is all about. Well, then there's a fifth thing. We see it in verse 3. We see that he's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. It means, Christian, that he never ever forgets his love for you. And that there's never a moment of your life where he is unfaithful to you. I forget his love for me and his faithfulness to me. And that is why I'm lustful and I covet and I gossip, and I become bitter, and I hold grudges, and I check out of my family and my friends and the relationships that God has given to me. I'm seeking an affirmation of something else to give me joy and something else to give me comfort when I do that. I'm not believing that Jesus Christ's steadfast love and faithfulness is enduring for me. And so I forget that he's made me secure. I forget that he has my best interests in view. I forget that he's constantly pursuing my joy. And so I seek out some other path to find joy for myself. But I can look to Psalm 98, and I can look to these words, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff in the Word of God, and be reminded that he has not forgotten his steadfast love to me, and he has not been unfaithful to me at any point, and he hasn't been unfaithful to you at any point either if you know him. And the birth of Jesus Christ shows us that. 
It shows us that this promise that was made long, long ago that he would come and redeem his people, come and provide salvation for him, is something that he actually remembered despite all of the rebellion and all of the indifference and all of the hostility that the people of God had toward him. He still did not forget them. Even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, he comes and he brings them to himself. And Jesus Christ, the birth in the major, shows us that. It shows us that his love for us never once, for one second, takes even the slightest dip. Have you ever lately given consideration to that? That he loves you to the point of his own death, to the point to where he remembers his steadfast love and faithfulness to you all the time. Psalm 98 reminds us of that. Here's the last thing, and the last reason why we can sing a song to him and have joy with him. And it's this, in verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You know, my ancestry is Irish, English, and German. And as I look around here, most of what I see in you is some kind of Northern European ancestry. Do you want to know what our ancestors were doing at the time that Psalm 98 was written? They were polytheistic, barbaric, idolatrous, godless, uncivilized people who were without hope and without God in the world. That's your family line, my friends. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to you, God in his providence and in his grace brought the gospel to those lands and redeemed many, many people. There was a time in my life, I look back on my own personal spiritual heritage and my family, and there's not much of one there. But for some reason, unbeknownst to me, purely because of God's love and faithfulness, he, come, he came to me and he revealed his gospel and his grace to me to this boy with no spiritual heritage from the suburbs of Fresno, California. And he made his gospel down here to southern Mississippi, to you, to be able to hear it, to be able to respond to it, to be able to enjoy him. It's made its way to you purely because of his grace. You know, that's something that makes me want to be thankful. It makes me want to sing. It makes me want to treasure Jesus Christ that he didn't pursue me because there was something good within me, and he didn't pursue you because of something good within you. He pursued us purely because it's part of his character to do so, because he's gracious. And that's what I'm thankful for. So whenever your faith goes into the doldrums and becomes cold and you feel antagonistic or indifferent to God, you can look at Psalm 98 and be reminded of his steadfast love and faithfulness. You can be reminded of his promises, of his goodness to you, and you can let his mercies well up within your heart. There's this temptation for us to forget those things. But it's important for us to remember them because God wants us in our lives and in our worship as we just go out and do life tomorrow and throughout the course of this week. He wants there to be a joy in Him and a passion for Him. If your soul is rarely or ever moved at all 
by the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, as we just sang this morning, then I would suggest that you get that checked out. You know, if you suddenly lose your sight or you lose your hearing, it's probably a good idea to get that checked out. I would recommend that. But if you've lost your taste for Christ, if you've lost your joy for him, I would suggest that you get that checked out too. And this is the place for it, the people of God. The way in which you can get that checked out is to check in with God's people, to tune into them, to live life together with them, and have just the accountability and the fellowship that that brings. The way you get that checked out is by keying into his word, keying into his promises to us, and saying, God, make yourself known to me. Make yourself real to me. Move my soul. Show me what clutter exists in my life that's preventing me from enjoying you. That's what you've created me for. That's what we're here for. The whole purpose of our life is to enjoy God and to glorify Him. That's what He's brought us here for. And all of these things, the the things that we've seen here in the first three verses of Psalm 98, these are not just products of coincidence. They're not just products of the evolutionary process. They're wonderful merciful works of God and His grace to us. And there's a freshness to it. His mercies are new every morning, which is why we can sing a new song to Him. And they're meant to stir our hearts and join with the sea and the rivers and the hills that are in this passage in enjoying Him. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, that's what we want to do with them. We want to join in that. And so it's the day after Christmas, and you're wondering where we're going to get to that part, the whole Christmas aspect of it, where joy to the world really creeps into the picture. I think we see echoes of that, especially the stanzas of that carol that we're familiar with in the last part, the last few verses, six verses of Psalm number 98. You may even want to look at that, because the first stanza of joy to the world says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And we get that off of verse 6 where we're called to make a joyful noise to the Lord, our king. Now we're Americans in here, and Americans don't do kings. This is not something that we're into. It's part of the fabric of our culture. Our founding fathers were very wise to, to create a country that was without a king because They had come from a nation where there was a king, that was their heritage, and they saw all the corruptions that that brought with us. A king with unbridled power can be wildly ruthless towards his subjects. That's what kings do. That's why we don't have a king. And so it's ingrained on the American psyche to be naturally suspicious of our government. That's something that's a cultural difference between us and those who are from the U.K., But when Jesus was born, what we discover is that a new kingdom has dawned. Like it or not, we have a king. There's a new kingdom that's there. But this kingdom is an eternal, benevolent kingdom with an eternal, benevolent king. A king that's constantly fighting for us, who's seeking out his people's joy, who's seeking out his people's good and well-being, and who's fighting to deliver us from our enemy. You know, one of the things that is totally unique about the kingdom of God and about Jesus Christ as king 
is that Jesus does what no other king does. Kings never, ever go to the front line of the battle to pursue the well-being of their subjects. They send other people to do that. They send soldiers to do that while they remain in their castle. But Jesus comes and he goes to the front line of the battle and he takes the brunt of the evil one and he dies for us so that we could live. There's no other king that does that anywhere in the world. And so we sing in this carol about this king that he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's the kind of king that Christians worship. That's the kind of king that we gather here Sunday after Sunday and live our lives out in the midst of our ordinary lives to worship, to believe in, to trust in. It's this kind of king that we put our hope and confidence in. You know, when Isaac Watts wrote this Christmas carol, Joy to the World, most people agree that he had in view the second coming of Jesus Christ more than he did the first coming. But whether you sing this song with a view towards the completion of the kingdom of God and the second coming, where he's going to come and he's going to return and he's going to make all things new and right every wrong and bring ultimate destruction to our enemies, whether you view it that way or whether you read it with a view of the first coming, sing this song with a view towards Christmas where Jesus comes and the promise of redemption and eternal hope arrives on the scene. Either way you sing the song, it works. Because in both instances, it's the same king that's come to fight for and achieve the eternal joy of his people. And that's why the song calls all the earth to receive her king and why it calls every heart to prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. That's what's there. Because the king has come on Christmas and he will come again to make everything right. In verse number 9 here, we see that he will come again to judge the world in righteousness and the people's inequity. Friends, you need to know this. There is no more terrifying thing in the whole world than to experience the judgment of God. To experience that before our lives as someone who has rejected Him as King and who's not prepared room for Him in our hearts. But there's no more wonderful thing to know than that He has spared us His judgment. That His judgment has been poured out on Christ for us so that we wouldn't have to undergo it. And because he's given us faith in the one who was born to a teenage girl in a cattle stall, one who would come and live for us and die for us and conquer death for us in his resurrection and bring us new and eternal life. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. The message is that we are big sinners who deserve his judgment, but Christ has borne that judgment for all who believe in him. That's the promise that we have. And just as he has removed condemnation from our lives, just as he has removed that because of what Christ has done, he's also going to come and remove the curse and make all things new. 
In this, in this song we see, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And I think that reality right there, that line that we sing, and that great song, Joy to the World, forces us to ask whether or not we actually believe in him. Whether you actually trust in him. Because for many of us, and maybe even for most of us, most of the time, we're more familiar with our own personal successes and our own failures than we are with Jesus. Maybe the grid through which you read your life is the things that you've accomplished for yourself. Your education, your financial position, your family life, your work, what you look like, your health, any number of things form and shape your identity. And your self-definition so easily gets built upon the things that you have accomplished for yourself and your depression arises as a result of the ways in which you have failed in those areas. And so when that becomes the story of your life, your life becomes like this vacillating fan. And you're shifting from pride to despair, and back to pride, and back to depression, and back to feeling really good about yourself, and back to feeling like the schmuck of South Mississippi. And that's what happens when we build our life upon our circumstances and upon our accomplishments because we can always look at our accomplishments and see that we have done something better or done something worse than somebody else. And we can look at our circumstances and we can see our circumstances as either being better or worse than somebody else's. And our contentment in that regard all depends upon who we're comparing ourselves to at the moment. We're in despair if we compare ourselves to others whose lives seem better than ours and we get prideful and arrogant when we compare ourselves to people who are less accomplished than us and circumstances are worse than ours. And when we do that, we're avoiding what the psalm calls us to here. It's a way to avoid coming to terms with the one who is the newborn king, the one who did what he came to do and who continues to fight for his people. And I think that's the way in which we box him up. I think that's the way in which we box him up and send him back and return him for something that is more shiny to us but will eventually break down and bring a lot of hardship in our lives and ultimately permanent separation from him. But that's the call of Psalm 98. The call of Psalm 98 and the call of the song Joy to the World And the call of the very gospel itself is for us to receive her king. It's a call to build our hope and our identity upon the newborn king. Christ has come. And he's going to come again. And he's done it so that he would be shown to be as beautiful as he actually is. And so that we would find our joy by delighting ourselves in him. All of creation speaks of that beauty. And the only way in which we're going to know true joy, my friends, is if we find ourselves satisfied by Him. And one week from now, it'll be 2011, believe it or not. And it's my desire for myself, and it's my desire for you, that above all the things in our lives that we want in this new year, it would be that we would treasure Jesus 
and his work for us in the gospel and his ongoing grace and the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Let's pray that for First Presbyterian Church this year and for yourself as we go forward into the new year. Let's pray. God, we, thankful, we are thankful that in the midst of our forgetfulness and unfaithfulness and disobedience and in a world that distracts us from the worship of you, the callousness of our own hearts and the attacks of the evil one, we thank you that in the midst of all of that, your steadfast love and faithfulness is never forgotten by you. And we know that when we just look upon Jesus Christ, that he came to fight for us, to accomplish our salvation, to give us the hope of glory, and to be with us and never to forsake us in this life, to tell us that even in the midst of struggle and pain, that we can have joy and we can have hope because you are on our side and you fought for us. So Lord, let that well up within our hearts a new song where we make a joyful noise to the Lord, not only in song, but in our life, through the way in which we live and through how we understand you. Do that for the sake of your glory and do it so that we would be satisfied in you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.